Thank you for joining us in our study of Hebrews chapter 4. We have come to verse 14. It's a new section. It deals with our great high priest, and that, of course, is talking about Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. Listen to what he writes in verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we have not a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There is something easily overlooked as we begin a section of Hebrews which presents Jesus as our great high priest. We must not miss the point that Jesus is not just another in a historic succession of priests as ordered by the Old Testament law, nor is he a continuation of the Old Testament system of worship established by God through Moses for the nation of Israel and only Israel. Only the book of Hebrews discusses Jesus' priesthood in the New Testament. If we neglect Hebrews, we'll miss this important teaching. What we call Christianity, but what the Bible calls a new and living way, and it uses that expression in Hebrews 10.20, is based on a new covenant. It is a replacement for Judaism, not a supplement to it. Instead, the grace in which we stand, based on all that Jesus Christ has accomplished for sinners, is a substitute for the legalistic religion of the Old Testament. We who are Gentiles, for the most part, should not even consider the religion of Judaism as a system on which our relationship with God is built. We have a new covenant a new priesthood, a new law, a new revelation, and a new relationship with God who lives in us. Now, no Israelite had all of that. In this section of Hebrews, from chapter 4, verse 14, to chapter 10, verse 18, the author will make a comparison of Jesus to the Old Testament priests. And why does he do it? To convince the readers, of Jesus' superiority to those priests of the Old Testament. His purpose is not to demonstrate that Jesus was qualified to be one of them, because he wasn't, nor was he trying to prove that Jesus was to serve as they did for centuries. The author does set forth qualifications in the first four verses of chapter 5, but it is to establish Christ's greatness under a new kind of priesthood, not the former system of Judaism. His exaltation of Jesus in his priestly role is not, however, based on the author's loyalty to Jesus. Instead, it is based on loyalty and respect for the scriptures. He proves by Old Testament passages that Jesus, the great high priest, is the one of whom holy men of God prophesied in days of old. That's authority enough for our author. Now, why does he, in verse 14, tell us that Jesus passed through the heavens? 
you might have expected him to say, passed into heaven. Well, there are heavens, at least three, according to Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2, where Paul wrote, I know a man in Christ who, 14 years ago, was caught up to the third heaven. Now, in verse 4, he calls it paradise, where he heard things that man is not permitted to talk about. So the writer is being very accurate when he says he passed through the heavens. Now, the writer in verse 14 identifies this great high priest. He calls him Jesus, the Son of God, and he said, Let us hold fast our confession. He says, we have a great high priest. We're not trying to get him to be a high priest for us. That is his role. God, through David, in the Old Testament said, The Lord has sworn, thou art a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. And so the writer wants these readers to hold fast to their confession. And confession doesn't mean reciting a list of sins. The word confession has to do with agreement. When you agree with something that someone else has said, you are making a confession. Now, we agree with the testimony of Scripture concerning what Jesus has done and the fact that God is propitiated by what he has done. He made a sacrifice, as a priest should do, and God is satisfied with that sacrifice. Now, he calls him the great high priest. There is no other priest called great in the Bible. He does call him the high priest, and that makes Jesus not a common priest who cannot enter the most holy place. And we're going to learn as we go through this section that Jesus did enter the holy place for us, but not on earth. It's in heaven. Now, he identifies Jesus as the Son of God, not a Son, as some people are apt to interpret this. Jesus himself testified to this unique sonship in John chapter 10, verses 38 and 39. Listen to how, in no uncertain terms, he declares himself to be the Son of God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do You accuse me of blasphemy because I said, I am God's son. And in John chapter 5, he proclaimed with great authority that he and the Father were equal when he said, just as the Father has life, so he has granted the, the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge the world. Now, that's authority. This is Jesus' equality with the Father. What the Father could do, Jesus can do. Now, in regard to Jesus passing through the heavens, why is this important? Because of where it puts him. He has arrived in the presence of God at the very throne of God. Listen again to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, 
having become as much superior to angels as the name he has obtained is more excellent than theirs. Now consider this. Jesus is alive at the right hand of God. Where is Mohammed? He's dead. Where is Confucius? He is dead. Where the countless numbers of religious leaders who attracted millions of disciples over many centuries? They have passed away. But Jesus has passed through the heavens, and he lives, and he is our high priest. Now in verse 15, the writer tells us that we have a priest who must be in touch with God, but also must be in touch with man. Listen to it. For we have not a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. This kind of a priest must know both parties thoroughly. Who better than Jesus can fulfill this role? He was both God and man. Now you see why the incarnation was essential. God's Son, the eternal Christ, became a human. Jesus shared the human experience, except for sin. All of life's trials, temptations, weaknesses, frustrations, and disappointments were experienced by him. You might say he didn't face the strong temptations which you experienced, but his were even greater. We fall into temptation, and we yield, but he didn't. Thus the temptation continued against him. Satan kept the pressure on without abatement, and he entered into a spiritual and physical struggle to which no human being ever can possibly arrive. It's like pain. How much can we bear? Only so much. Then we faint, and we feel no more. But his pain went on and on. What Jesus bore for us is indescribable, nor can humans ever measure it, and he did not faint. He was alive until the moment of his death. Now, verse 16 tells us, Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us then, with confidence, yes, because we have this kind of a priest who is very much like us in that he had a human frame and suffered like we suffer. Because of that, let's go with confidence to the throne of grace. You see, what he experienced gave Jesus a sincere sympathy for you and me. This was a new concept to the religious thinking that prevailed in the first century, both among Jews and the pagans. The idea that God could share the human experience was incredible. The Jew had God far, far up in heaven, totally unapproachable and very different from men. The Greek Stoics those were their highest thinkers, said that their gods couldn't feel anything. If they could, they reasoned, we could influence them by our condition of sorrow or joy, and that would mean a certain power over the gods. So gods, they believed, were beyond feeling. 
Other Greeks believed that their gods were so far detached from men in this world that they didn't even know that men existed. Now, John 3.16 takes on a new meaning in light of that kind of a background. For God so loved the world, he cared for it. And that's far different from what the Greeks believed about God. Christianity, you see, ushered in this fantastic religious idea that God not only is aware, but that he cares, and he loves, and he reaches out to us. Beyond that, God comes to live with man in human form. So he does know our passions, our rebellion, and every human problem we face. Jesus, our priest, knows our problems because he came through them. He is thus generous with grace and gives mercy to help us. Notice in verse 16, he urges them to draw near to the throne of judgment. No, it's the throne of grace. That's where we receive mercy, and that's where we find grace to help in time of need. Do you have to be worthy? No, the word grace excludes worthiness. He wants the unworthy to come, but he wants the believing to come. And that's the point that the author here is trying to make. How many things must a person do to get to heaven? Everyone seems to have a different idea, but our free booklet entitled Heaven's Password makes it very clear. Write for your copy today. Ask for Heaven's Password. It's free. Until tomorrow, this is Nick Calavota reminding you that the word gospel means... Good news. Our address is Radio Bible Courses, Post Office Box 14916, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, 70898. The website is rbcword.org.